Hello and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host for today, Brooke Jackson, bringing you a special mini episode of our podcast to share an update from Maui. Before I get into that, I gotta celebrate our membership in the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts by tossing to a little jingle from one of our friends. Jing, 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 jingle. The Final Straw is a weekly anarchist radio show. It's fucking awesome, and you're never going to hear me say fucking awesome on our show, because we're FCC regulated. There's a, a black part of my heart that that just flutters when you, when you talk like that. I... Uh, talk, then more yelling. It's a weird sort of, like, nice in a way, but also can get kind of crushing at times. The final straw And we're back. I recently visited the Hawaiian island of Maui, uh, mostly for vacation, but while I was there, I also wanted to see how things were going after the wildfires that had captured all the headlines a few months ago. In case you missed it, we talked about the fires on our September 4th episode, that's uh, episode number 85, when we did our monthly apocalyptic news review. To briefly recap, on August 8th of this year, several wildfires erupted on the island of Maui. The fire in the Lahaina district got the most media attention, but there were also fires in central and south Maui, including Upper Kula and East Kihei. The cause of the Lahaina fire was a spark from a downed power line, and this was probably the cause of the other fires on Maui, but that hasn't been officially declared. In either case, the power lines were knocked down by the 60 to 90 mile per hour winds that were ripping through the island from a nearby hurricane. The winds helped grow and spread the fires quite quickly. About 7,000 acres across the island were burned. It was the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history, with 99 people confirmed dead. Even as of today, there are still four people unaccounted for. The fire victims were all from the Lahaina district. They ranged in age from seven years old to 97. And while there were a few children that were lost in the fire, most of the people were older adults. The average age of the victims is 65 years old. The pictures and video from Maui after the fires showed the immense destruction to the city of Lahaina. Before I visited, I was under the impression that basically the entire town had been lost. But when I drove there to see things in person, I was surprised by how much is still standing, at least how much is standing in contrast to the pictures that came out immediately after the fires. I don't say that to downplay the destruction. There are residential blocks that are completely gone. But there are also areas where the fire seems to have skipped around or perhaps where some of the structures were better built to withstand the conditions. And there was more greenery there than I expected. Now, a quick note on the geography and names in Maui, because there is a town called Lahaina, and it resides in a broader geographical area that is also called Lahaina, the district of Lahaina. Um, That district varies in size depending on, uh, mostly on what government agency is using it. You know, there's school district water district, uh, political boundaries, uh, that kind of thing. So for my purposes, when I'm talking about uh, the Lahaina district or area, I'm, I'm really just talking about the geographic and social boundaries that are sort of around Lahaina town. 
For the first two months immediately after the fire in Lahaina, the whole of West Maui was closed. And this includes a large resort area that's north of Lahaina, and it's where a lot of the really uh, fancy high-end hotels are located. Even people who lived in Lahaina were unable to return to the area until six weeks after the fires. As of right now, the town is still closed to everyone but residents. The road entrances are blocked off and monitored, uh, and there's temporary privacy fencing around most of the town. There are also clear signs uh, that are hanging on that fencing and at the entrances. They say things like residents only, keep out, let Lahaina heal, and so forth. So when you drive to Lahaina from the south or east of the island, the highway that you're on will split around the town of Lahaina. The original highway went through the town into the flat area near the ocean. Then about 10 years ago, the state completed construction on a bypass highway that goes around the east side of the town. And it's on a hillside, so you can look over much of the town as you drive and see some of what's going on there without violating the local residents' request for privacy. There are these shocking pockets of normalcy as you drive the edge of the town. For instance, there's a functioning, seemingly untouched gas station right next to the highway. And just beyond it is a grocery store. I parked at the grocery store to buy a few things and try and talk to people. Uh, and the store seemed to be just fine and business as usual, as did the gas station. People were working, customers were coming and going. Yet the temporary fencing around the town started right at the end of the store's parking lot, because the next building over from the grocery store was, it wasn't a building anymore. It was just this twisted mess of blackened metal beams and piles of rubbish. And beyond it, there's this huge block of red and black dirt where only the foundation stones of houses remain. Then further out still, there's a set of apartments or, or condos that seem to be entirely untouched by the fire. Uh, there are even newer cars parked in the lot as though uh, perhaps the building might be occupied with residents. All over the town, the pattern repeats. There's this uh, Safeway grocery store that's right on the ocean. And it was humming along. Uh, again, cars coming and going. Busy parking lot. And immediately to the north of it, the residential neighborhoods uh, were totally wiped out gone. As you drive, you can see various trees popping up over the privacy fencing all around. Some of those trees uh, in good health with greenery, uh, others of them half burned and, and um, looking a little worse for the wear. There are also homes that look fine and they're right next to houses where only the chimney remains. On the far side of the bypass highway, there's a newer neighborhood of homes that is completely untouched, and it's overlooking some of the worst of the scorched earth. It's kind of a head trip to see this in person. And um, if you want to get a sense of it, Google Maps satellite view is updated uh, it, over Lahaina to show what this looks like. So you can, you can take a look at that and you can see, um, you know, a single solid roof standing out uh, in the middle of a bunch of burned buildings. And, and you can uh, look at that Safeway, for instance, and, and see how uh, it's there and fine and the, the neighborhoods beyond it are gone. Again, a real head trip. In the central and upcountry parts of the island, the story repeats. On a different day, I was driving down the mountain, Haleakala, after going on a sunrise hike, um, and I was driving towards the south coast. Uh, 
I passed through the areas of Upper Kula and Olinda, where about 1,300 acres burned, and at least 20 homes were destroyed, uh, and there were hundreds of other structures that were damaged. This was at the same time as the Lahaina fire. So I was coming up on a hairpin turn in the road, and I noticed that in the, the crook of this hairpin, there was a huge pile of landscape debris, um, dirt, tree trunks, branches, uh, shrubs, stumps, um, and the, the pile was at least twice as high as my vehicle. And it struck me as very odd. But as soon as I came around the hairpin, hairpin turn, I saw ahead of me a section of houses that were completely gone. There were one or two houses on the right side of the road, uh, solid and normal, and then this massive gap, which exposed a valley area where the fire had clearly burned its way through the mountain, taking along homes and trees with it. Unlike in Lahaina, where there's still a ton of rubble and wreckage everywhere, the area of Upper Kula is nearly done being cleared. The total devastation in the upcountry uh, is valued at about half a billion dollars versus the devastation in the Lahaina district is closer to five and a half or six billion dollars. Work to clear the upcountry is progressing much faster than in Lahaina. And for me, this, this raised a question of bias. Is perhaps FEMA or the EPA or local government, private contractors, are they favoring Kula because it's more affluent or because it's one of the whitest residential neighborhoods on the island. But what it comes down to is a matter of scale and complexity. The Lahaina fires decimated major infrastructure and utilities, and many more structures in total than the upcountry fires. It only took the EPA a month in Kula to complete what they call their phase one removal, which is taking out and disposing of hazardous materials like uh, pesticides, batteries, gas cylinders, the assessments for phase two removal in that region are also finished, and the phase two work might even be underway by the time you're listening to this episode. In the second phase, the rest of the fire damage is removed, the ash, debris, and so forth. Once completed, the control of the land will fully return to its residents, and they can start planning and rebuilding. Meanwhile, in Lahaina, uh, the EPA has only just barely finished uh, phase one. In fact, they announced at the end of November, uh, just after I got home from my trip, that they had finished the phase one removal. The initial expectation for that work is that it was going to take several months or even a year, but thankfully it progressed much faster. And that was definitely um, aided by the federal government, the Biden administration, declaring that they would cover all the costs of the cleanup. That cut out huge logistical and financial hurdles in getting the work started and completed. Now, Lahaina had, and still has, a lot of factors complicating the cleanup and rebuilding. Perhaps the most emotionally significant component is the consideration that there were still human remains of fire victims in Lahaina while the EPA completed the phase one work. So there's a difficult balance there of wanting to respect those remains, of course, but also the risk of hazardous contamination. You know, you would of course want to have your grandfather's remains returned to you, but if those remains are contaminated, uh, toxic, hazardous, you don't want to risk cancer, illness, uh, even death um, from receiving them. And so there's, uh, again, there's a real emotional and complex um, balance there. In addition, Lahaina is a place of cultural and historic significance. Before the Hawaiian Islands were united under a single ruler, each island had its own leader or set of leaders. And these are called the alii. 
the capital of the island of Maui was Lahaina Town. Uh, one of the people I talked with on my trip was an older resident of the island, and they said that many of Maui's alii from before unification were buried in the hillsides <clears throat> above Lahaina Town. Uh, they were laid to rest at the foot of the mountain. After all of the islands were united, Lahaina became the capital of the entire Hawaiian kingdom. And there is a graveyard in Lahaina town where the first kings and queens of Hawaii were buried. To the native people of the island, uh, Lahaina represents a, a melting pot of sorts of all the islands, a place where there were cultural confrontations and significant changes that took place. And you could literally see the evolution of Maui and, and really all of Hawaii in the different buildings and the architecture of Lahaina before the fires. So there's an additional layer of tragedy and loss due to the fires, and it complicates the restoration process. I'm really impressed with how the EPA has managed this concern. <clears throat> they created a monitoring program, which included cultural awareness training for all of the EPA staff, all of their subcontractors, and all other federal workers doing the phase one work and now the phase two work. The EPA also hired a couple of dozen local residents to work strictly as cultural monitors, working on-site directly with the cleanup teams. So each cleanup team working in various parts of Lahaina has a local resident on the team to help watch out for cultural and historical sites and artifacts. Another factor that complicated both Phase 1 and will complicate Phase 2 debris removal in Lahaina is the risk of toxic runoff particularly into the town's western neighbor, the Pacific Ocean. In the edges of the town I was able to visit, I noticed they installed a sheet of filtering membrane over the storm drains, and then they surrounded those storm drains with a, with a sandbag of sorts. Uh, it wasn't really a sandbag, but about that size and, and um, uh, filled with material that would help catch and, and filter um, anything that might get washed down towards the storm drain. In the waters around Maui and, and all of the islands, there's a tremendous amount of biodiversity. There are turtles, dolphins, whales, sea lions, sharks. There are a lot of places with coral. There's abundant aquatic life and all kinds of fish and crustaceans. There's just a ton of living entities in and around the waters that would be affected by contamination into the ocean. Uh, for my part, I like to snorkel. And um, I visited beaches in several places along Maui's west coast during my trip, from up in the northwestern tip in Honolulu to Kapalua and Napili Bays. I went out to Molokini Crater, uh, down to Kihei, Wailua, and McKenna on the south coast. And from that northwestern tip down to at least Kihei, you can see the ash in the water. The ash was washing up on the beaches, leaving black lines and debris in the sand. If you've ever been to a beach uh, after an oil spill, you can see a similar kind of thing where the, the waves washing up on the beach leave these black lines. The visibility in the water was quite low almost everywhere. The one spot I visited on the whole western coast that didn't appear to be affected by ash and debris was in Little Beach, which is way down toward the southwestern end of the island. <clears throat> After it cleared each property in Lahaina of hazardous waste, the EPA applied a soil stabilizer to try and keep more of that ash from getting whipped into the air or washed into the ocean. Oh, uh, and here's a fun fact. Maui does not have a landfill that is certified to handle hazardous waste. It's all being shipped to the West Coast. So the electronics, paint, flammable liquids, 
batteries from AAAs to electric vehicles to solar power walls, the asbestos, lead, pesticides, acids, etc. All that toxic shit is traveling on barges across the ocean, headed for disposal at places here on Turtle Island. The next phase of cleanup will involve taking out all of the big items. The work will have to be done carefully to keep more ash and smaller debris from getting into the air and water. Something like 2,000 structures were damaged by the fire. So we're talking about really big items from a big number of properties on a fairly small island. The rubble that needs to get hauled away includes concrete foundations, burned timber framing, blackened car carcasses, and all kinds of mangled leftovers of household furnishings and belongings. So the local government has decided to build a new landfill on Maui specifically and exclusively for the phase two debris removal from Lahaina. The landfill is very urgently needed. And so the typical many year process of siting and permitting a landfill is being expedited. And uh, gee, I uh, can't imagine that expediting that will have any problems down the road. As you can imagine, the decision to build a new landfill was and is very contentious. If you want to know more about this, you can look up news articles. Um, one of the local residents said to me that she is glad the debris will remain on Maui because it belongs to the island. Let's look ahead now to the future. There is and will be a lot of contention about how Maui and Lahaina should move forward in healing and rebuilding. Initially after the fires, Hawaii asked people not to visit Maui, and all of West Maui was closed. The early sentiment was, stay away, let Maui heal. That attitude has shifted for some, with a governor and state travel agency practically begging people to come and visit. Their attitude now is, help Maui heal, come visit. And there's good reason they feel this way. The island's economy is painfully dependent on tourism. Something like 70% of every dollar of revenue is generated by visitors to the island. But travel to Maui is only about two-thirds normal levels right now. Lahaina was a huge part of the draw to Maui. But Lahaina town is basically gone. What little remains is closed and will remain closed for an indefinite period. Although the cleanup is moving faster than expected so far, the road to rebuilding will still be quite long. As I mentioned earlier, the fire damaged critical infrastructure, not the least of which is the electrical system. After a disaster like this, which disrupt power lines, it's not uncommon for electrical companies to go through quickly and install temporary measures to restore power and then come back later to tidy things up. There was evidence of this outside of Lahaina, driving through central Maui and east Kihei, where the other fires took place. You can see a lot of power poles that have been temporarily propped up, and you can see the power lines themselves, uh, some of them very low-hanging. Here and there, there are the big bundles of extra line that are looped up, waiting for the electric company to return and straighten things out. But in Lahaina, there aren't even power poles to prop up. They're gone. So the town has some serious rebuilding to do, and they have some options. For instance, they could bury the power lines, which would reduce both the risk of power loss in a future windstorm or hurricane, and the risk of a downed line sparking a fire. But rising sea levels due to climate change could eventually cause problems to underground wires, like erosion. Another piece of basic infrastructure is access to potable water. The city's main water line is intact but it was heavily polluted during the fires. As you can kind of imagine, uh, the 
uh, household um, and, and business water lines that burned both metal and plastic, um, they melted and leached into uh, the main water line, um, distributing uh, lots of lots of really toxic chemicals into that water. So that main line is going to need to be flushed and tested and flushed and tested many times uh, until they get all of those chemicals out of it. Thankfully, the main line is buried deeply enough that it seems to be structurally sound. But then all of the branches off of it that provided water to homes and businesses were damaged. Some of those lines can be renovated, but most of them need to be replaced. And then there's still a bigger question looming. How much potable water should be diverted to Lahaina? So let's talk about the topography of most of the Hawaiian islands. It's very similar on each island, uh, which results in nearly identical weather patterns. The eastern side of each island tends to be colder, with a lot more stormy weather and heavy rainfall. The storm fronts are dissipated as they break on the mountains, which leaves the western side of the islands sunnier and drier. Those western sides then draw more of the tourism and development dollars. People want to come to that place where it's warm and it's sunny. But it often means that water has to be diverted from the eastern side of the island to the west. One of Maui's residents said it to me this way. All of the fresh water that's on Maui is all the fresh water that's available to Maui. In other words, there's a finite water supply on the island. And that's true for all of Hawaii. There is not a single commercial scale desalination plant on any of the islands. So they're relying on uh, the fresh water that comes via rain or shipping it to their tiny islands in the middle of Pacific Ocean from places far away. Maui has been in a historically severe drought for the last couple of years after more than a decade of declining average rainfalls to the island. So Lahaina faces these two fundamental infrastructure issues, water and power. And rebuilding both of them is complex and contentious in the face of climate change. If and when Maui is able to work through these issues and rebuild infrastructure, there will be another major hurdle, the availability of raw materials, by which I mean concrete, lumber, piping, insulations, fixtures, furnishings, and more. There will be a significant spike in demand for all of these things, which will need to be shipped to the tiny islands. I shouldn't call them. Well, they are tiny. I mean, Maui's the size of uh, Delaware, smaller than Rhode Island, I believe. They're, they're not massive islands, um, and they are you know, very remote. I think some of the most remote islands in the world, if, if memory serves. So if something like 2,000 buildings were damaged in Lahaina, and they are all going to be replaced, we could conservatively say that 2,000 new bathrooms and kitchens will need to be built. Maui will need to import 2,000 toilets, for instance. And it's not just the raw materials that will be in high demand. Maui will also need skilled laborers like carpenters and plumbers and electricians. So that's another point of bottleneck, which will slow down rebuilding by months or even years. And that's a long road. Back to the here and now. The people who lived in Lahaina are displaced, most of them still without permanent housing. About 7,000 people are in temporary residence like hotels. Immediately after the fires, hotels across the island welcomed the displaced residents and gave them shelter. Then as the island reopened to tourism, hotels began reducing the number of rooms available for survivors, with some hotels, like the Ritz-Carlton in Maui, ending their temporary shelter arrangements entirely. Housing 
is is outrageously expensive in Maui. Um, the price there is something like double the average cost of housing in the continental U.S., which, as we all know, is already uh, unaffordable and and um, severely overpriced. So it's 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 twice as bad on Maui. And the housing supply has, of course, only gotten tighter and prices have increased more since the fires. Um, there's that classic capitalistic response to an increase in demand, price gouging. FEMA seems to be working very hard on the housing problem, at least the immediate problem. They've distributed funds to victims to help them with relocation and ongoing rent costs. They're working with hotels and other short-term rentals like Airbnb to expand housing options for the next one to two years. They've expanded their current programs and they've added new programs to help with the fact that this is a, you know, a different situation than um, some of the other disasters that they faced. And I think there's another program. I know there's another program. I think it's a state program that's offering monthly support to homeowners who allow Lahaina survivors to live with them. So if, um, you know, a couple has a, a spare room or something like that, they can invite a, a single person or a couple or whatever to come and live with them and they get a small stipend for doing that. What I hope is that we're not doomed to repeat in Maui the problems we saw in the years after the campfire destroyed Paradise, California. The nearby towns first welcomed and later resented the survivors who moved in. Five years later, only 20% of the structures in Paradise have been rebuilt and only a third of the population has returned. I'd like to think we've learned something from that, but I'm not so sure. For my part, I chose to visit Maui on my vacation, hoping that my few tourism dollars could help the economy, and that while I was there, I could find some other ways to help too. More than anything, I wanted to show solidarity and support for Lahaina Town. I took along a small vial of moon water that I made at home on the west coast of Turtle Island. I wanted to give that water to the roots of the magnificent banyan tree in Lahaina Town, with a prayer from one displaced indigenous nation to another. It was not meant to be, and that's okay. I did take my moon water from the lands of the Kalapoya to a grove of banyan trees farther north, uh, and I, I gave it to the roots there, and I talked with those trees a while about the pain on their island. Now that I'm home, I'm researching ways to help from afar. In addition to financial support, there are organizations on Maui accepting donations of supplies, and there are autonomous efforts to help homeowners keep their property. For instance, there's one group that's tracking and cataloging realtor attempts at land grabbing. If you're interested in helping out, please do a search for how to help Lahaina, and you will find more information on the various initiatives. Your contribution could be as simple as writing a letter to the governor of Hawaii, encouraging a moratorium on foreclosures in Maui during this time. The road of recovery is long. Maybe we contribute to the healing. Mahalo and miigwech. If you would like to know more about the work of Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, the publishing collective behind this podcast, please check out our website at tangledwilderness.org. You can also interact with us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter. You can meet, reach me directly on Mastodon at Ogemakwe Brook. That's Brook with an E. Live Like the World is Dying is one of several podcasts we produce, in addition to publishing books, essays, short stories, art, games, and more. Our work is made possible by the support of our patrons on Patreon. I would like to give a special thanks to Allie, Paige, Jennifer, Kirk,
David, Starro, Patoli, Chris, Theo, Kirk, Princess Miranda, Milicia, Marm, Catgut, Janice and Odell, Dana, Carson, Buck, Lord Harkin, Nicole, Pop Baruna, Thunder, Percival, Ben Ben, Micaiah, Anonymous, SJ, Trickster, Hunter, Chelsea, Julie, Boise Mutual Aid, and Haas the Dog. Thank you.